Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. And now, your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. The other day, we had a bit of the tale of the fourth grade nothing, but something. My son William is in the fourth grade, and for the first time in his life, he got caught up in his friend's drama which caused him some serious concern and disrest. When I picked them up from school, as we walked over to his flag football practice and game, he unloaded on me the goings-on of his day. He had falsely told a girl that he had a crush on her to help his friend out. And he kept stating that he felt weird. Weird was not something I could really get into at that moment, as I was rushing to get the kids over to the field, multitasking, and had brushed it aside because, well, he looked physically fine. He really needed to get to his game. So I told him maybe running around on the field would help to clear his head and would help him to organize his thoughts and put them into perspective. During halftime, William again came up to me to tell me that he was feeling weird. Unfortunately, I had to leave during the game to drive my daughter to her dance practice. After we had dinner, William came to sit next to me on the chair that I was sitting on, almost on my lap. He's a really big kid. He's nine years old, maybe looks 12. My normal-sized feet can fit into his shoes now. And he states again, I feel weird. At that point, the whole family was sitting in the living room, and William begins to give us a detailed explanation of what had happened. His best friend, also in the fourth grade, wanted to break up with a girl. And from what we gathered from him, boyfriend and girlfriend in the fourth grade is in name only, no hand-holding involved. But anyway, his BFF wanted to break up with his girlfriend and like another girl. And in order to mitigate the blow, he had asked William to tell the girlfriend that William, in fact, liked her. William declined. But at the continuous cajoling of his friend, William ended up telling her an untruth. And he did it three different times. The first was a declaration. And then he stated his love two more times to convince her further that he did sincerely like her. And then she declared her love for him. At that moment, my big nine-year-old is wailing. Tears are freely coming out of his eyes. (laughs) His tears are followed by loud mouth cries. My poor baby continues to cry. I'm not ready to date. I'm just a kid. I don't want to have a girlfriend. I'm so stupid. As he continues to wail and sob. I thought this part was pretty funny. William continues to mention a Justin Bateman movie. How the Justin Bateman character hires someone to have an affair with his wife. So that he could file for divorce. And William continues to state. I was that someone, (laughs) the dummy who has the affair, 
because someone told me to. I learned that my husband had watched this movie with the kids when I was working late. Because William had stated an untruth, it had physically affected him. I understand now why all afternoon he kept voicing that he felt weird. Because what he said to another person was not in line with his truth. He literally felt it in his whole body. He knew he felt really, really off. He's a kid that doesn't really lie. When he thinks he's done something at all, possibly mean or wrong, he shares his experience with me, possibly for my approval or to understand where that was on the appropriate scale. In retrospect, it's amazing to think how many adults lie and it doesn't affect us, or so we think. But for a little kid who is not in this habit, it's a huge burden. As I'm wiping my boy's tears, the whole family continues to agree that yes, what he did was stupid. My little seven-year-old is shaking her head as she looks at her older brother. He knew better and he didn't listen to his truth. And he let his friend convince him to do something that he knew was wrong. And above all, something that he didn't want to do. He also involved himself in someone else's drama. And the whole family agreed, since there was definitely a wrong and he's upset like this, he should try to make it right so that he could begin to feel better. And then my husband states the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My husband continues to state to William, At this point, William, you can't change the past. What's done is done. But you have the power to change your future and make the wrong right. So tomorrow, you're going to have to tell her that you told her an untruth to help your friend out and that you were wrong to do so. We practiced with William what he was going to say to the girl to whom he had falsely confessed his love and what he was going to say to his best friend. For his best friend, William wanted to add that if he ever wanted to come eat tacos with us every Friday, he can never put him in this position again. Friends don't do that to each other. It was sweet. Before bedtime, William wanted to hear the serenity prayer again. It comforted him. And the next day after school, William had his conversations with the girl and his best friend. He felt better and he felt like himself again. Welcome to Lost or Found today and thank you for tuning in. Today I will be speaking to my good friend Dr. Heidi Olander who is an OBGYN doctor at Kaiser Permanente San Jose Medical Center and with Kaiser Permanente Santa Cruz. Most of her peers know her as a kind and legitimate badass and to her patients she is truly a thoughtful and caring doctor who still enjoys the practice of medicine. Today, we will be speaking to her about her recent health scare and what it's meant to her. Thank you for being here today, Heidi, and welcome to Lost or Found. Thanks, Michelle. It's so great to be with you again. I've missed you. 
Oh, I missed you so much, Heidi. And it's really a blessing to see you looking so beautiful and healthy again. Thank you. So Heidi, if I may ask, can you tell us what you've been through over the last couple of months? Yes. Um, it's been really interesting. Um, about three, no, a few months ago in June, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and um, which was a really interesting thing to happen since I know nothing about the brain. And um, so after a lot of research and investigation, I underwent a craniotomy in July, and I later on found out that this brain tumor was not cancerous. It was benign. And it was um, an amazing feeling to uh, realize that my life um, was going on a different trajectory. And um, I've kind of tried to bottle that feeling and feel it every day because it's a really wonderful, wonderful feeling. I know, you know, your migraines had led to this diagnosis, right? Yeah. Yeah. The I guess the MRIs and everything. But when there was a thought that it could be cancerous, what was going through your head at the time? Well, it depends on when you ask me. <laughs> when I first contemplated the idea that it could be a cancer, my first thought was, what is going to be the impact on my family? Um, and that was probably the most frightening part of it. Um, and then... I got some advice from a good friend who said, you know, just concentrate on, just visualize yourself being healthy again. No matter which path you take to get there. If it's benign, great. You're going to be healthy again. And if it's a cancer, just picture yourself being healthy again. Just maybe in a longer path. That really helped me to focus on that thought, just getting back to health, whichever path it took me. It's kind of like so in line with you, though, that you would be worried about your family first, mm. you know, like or like the, the impact on them when it's happening to you. I think that's true of most mothers, honestly. I think that many of us kind of live life with a filter of how is this going to affect my kids or my family, which is good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. But definitely uh, that was absolutely my first thought. What thoughts were you having in terms of like the impact? Um, I, I, you know, my kids are all three very different people. And so I tried to think about how it would impact each of them and what I could possibly do to mitigate, you know, anything that would bring them harm. And um, because all my kids are different, each each of it, each thought was different about what I could do. And it all was borne out in their reactions to when I told them, they all reacted very, very differently and just in character with who they are. <laughs> I mean, I know you were working throughout and seeing you in the office, I was so amazed at knowing what you knew and the, you know, the concerns that you had that you were working, you were able to work through it. I mean, work during it. And I don't know how you really kept it together knowing you had to go th through so much to get to diagnoses. Yeah, that was interesting because if you had asked me before 
all this, if you had a potential cancer diagnosis or if you were awaiting surgery that had the potential to really change your life, would you work beforehand or, you know, how would you feel? And I imagined that I would feel much more anxious than I actually did. And I imagined that I wouldn't be able to work because I would be distraught. And I don't know why, but it didn't feel that way to me. Um, first of all, I had a lot of trust in the process. I, I really trusted the doctors who were making decisions with and for me, which helped a lot. And it, this might be kind of a long way to get here, but most of my young life, I was really a worry word. I spent a lot of time worrying about what if, what if, what if. And then one of the worst things I could ever imagine happened, and my father passed away relatively quickly at age 63. And uh, I realized that all the worrying in the world didn't prevent something bad from happening to me. And right then and there, honestly, I made this vow that I was going to spend less, less time worrying, which is not an easy thing for a chronic worry word, right? But I really did, and I adopted this idea, which I share with my patients all the time, which is wait to worry until you know you have something to worry about. If it's still in limbo, you know, a lot of times mm -hmm. being in limbo is absolutely the worst part of the disease process, right? And so I've made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to worry because the doctor in me knows that it doesn't do any good and it can actually do you harm. It, it harms your immune system. It harms your energy level. It saps your mental health. And so what I really tried to live by that myself when I was in the midst of a health crisis that I didn't know what that thing that I call the brain booger was in my head. And it had the potential to be something really scary, but it also had the potential to be nothing. And so until I knew that it was something really scary, I was not going to stress out about it. And I, I'm actually surprised that I was able to do that as much as I was, because like you said, I came to work, I did my thing. I did have a couple of days that I had to call in sick at the last minute because I might have been waiting for a result of an MRI or, you know, waiting to hear what the tumor board decided to do with me or to recommend for me. And I wouldn't have a lot of focus. And it wasn't that my anxiety was off the chart. It was just that I couldn't focus. And um, luckily... As um, you were like anticipating the surgery, which is highly involved, you know, they're like opening your skull to get to your brain. Yeah, it was honestly... It, once we decided to do the surgery, it was almost a relief because I knew what the path was going forward. I, I spent more anxious moments contemplating making the decision on whether to have surgery yeah. or not and um, worrying that it would be up to me and I might make a bad decision. Mm -hmm. And so once the decision had been made, it was actually kind of a relief to move forward with to it. to go for the diagnosis you mean yeah and, to, and have, to know you know all of us know as doctors getting a tissue diagnosis so that you can yeah. figure out what you're dealing with that's really became my focus 
Because I think that's how we can really know, like, or determine what our path will be once we know. Because if we go at it blindly, it's so much more confusing. Like, what if, what if? You yeah, know? if you spend time in that what if, that can be torture. Yeah. I find it highly interesting that you said that you were a worry wart, like a huge, you know, a majority of your life. Because that's not how I, I've known you the, the past few years that I've known you, you know? I know you as... An amazing woman who's strong and caring and able to carry these qualities and so calm. Like, I remember when, you know, you were anticipating the surgery, we would go out and walk together. And you were able to, like, get your strength together and just enjoy, like, being outside, feeling the sun, feeling the wind. As we talked about what was going on in your life, how old were you when you kind of, when your mindset changed and you let's see my dad um my dad passed away in 2005 so um i was roughly 42 then and um that it really made this huge impact on me and i that's pretty much when i changed my focus and resolved to not worry so much and recognized how little it matters how how not even it, it's even worse than that Worrying not only doesn't matter, but it takes other things away from you. Um, energy, sleep. Um, I think it takes up a lot of energy. It does. You know, instead of enjoying the now when you worry, that's a whole lot of energy that you're spewing into, I think, like kind of like this space that you may not want to be there when you don't know, you know. The other thing is, you know, I've been through a couple of other crises in my life and uh, you know, some mental health crises in my family that were really painful. And the things that got me through were staying calm and, and not freaking out. <laughs> so um, I hate to say it, but the way we learn to deal with adversity and become more resilient is to emerge from the other side of a difficult experience intact and feeling like, that experience added to you and your resilience or your character or you, just who you are. And um, it gives you more confidence, I think, as you face the inevitable crises that we're all going to face in our life. But when you get through one and you... It makes you stronger, right? Yeah, I think it's true. Like, I mean, the truth is no one's life is perfectly happy. You know, isn't that the truth? I mean, the truth in life is that you go through a whole hell of a lot of ups and downs. But you can determine how badly or how little your boat is shaken. And I think by taking care of ourselves and feeling grounded you determine how much you're going to shake. Because the truth is, sometimes it's in inevitable. Like, we can't control what will happen. We could get into a car crash, or we could have, like, a diagnosis that we have to think about, you know? But we can determine how grounded we are to deal with it. I think that word grounded really resonates with me because I, I do feel like that's kind of the key to getting through some of these things is to really keep yourself grounded and know what that takes for you because what grounds you might be different from what grounds me. You know? It's true. Was your dad a worrywart? Yes. 
My dad was a worrywart. My mother is a worrywart. Although she's even much better too. But uh, I think it's because we're congenitally Catholic uh, <laughs> that we kind of absorbed it with the sacraments. You know? but, and I think sometimes stuff like that, isn't it kind of passed down in families? Like how you think or the fears and the worries, I think that's oftentimes passed down in our families. Certainly it's part of part of what we bring. Uh, you know, we can't, we, what has been modeled for us in, in a lot of different ways, because, you know, of course, my, my family of origin influences how I respond to things. Also, you know, uh, mentors and watching them go through adverse events or watching good friends go through adverse events and learning from them, you know, what, what did they do that you admired through something? And you, it, that becomes a piece of you too. I mean, a little bit of the fabric of who you are. So I hate to say it, but as you get older, hopefully you get better at it if you're lucky enough to learn from things. It's, it's an interesting scenario because the way I always imagine you, Heidi, is that you're the kind of person where I know you would be there for your friends, you know? And to actually have this moment in time where you really have to be there for yourself. Like sometimes people aren't able to do that, but it's kind of like you were tested. Were you there for yourself at this very vulnerable, one of the vulnerable moments in your life kind of thing, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because part of allowing yourself to be there for yourself is also letting other people do for you. And I know, you know, we know all these high-powered women who are can-doers and, you know, super women who who do all these things for other people. Um, and one of, one of the lessons that's so fresh for me after this experience is how freeing it is to let other people do for you. You know, for instance, um, I had a number of colleagues say, you know, how can I help with your practice while you're gone. I really appreciated them reaching out. I had um, an amazing, I called it my army of love. I didn't have to cook anything, neither did my family for three weeks because everybody brought food and flowers and it was just amazing. And I, I can imagine that a younger me would have had a hard time accepting all that help and um, would have kind of brushed it off and and yet, this time I said yes. You know, I really was in a place where I wanted my family to be taken care of and not have them worry about stuff like that. And um, saying yes was really freeing. And it was, um, I can't even tell you how much it meant to me to have people step up and take care of me and my family through this whole thing. And um, Superwoman no more. I will yeah, <laughs> gladly I accept help from other people. I think, you know, the being a superwoman or even like superman, I feel like that's what our culture kind of really honors. And, you know, like that's what they, this is this ideal that they have, but it's impossible to live up to. And isn't it true, like in our culture, we rarely ask for help when all of us really need help. And, you know, like the number of times someone asks you, do you need help? And you say no, when the truth is, Yes, you know, God, I would really love that. Right. And I think, you know, it's like that honesty is really, really hard. 
You know, that also brings up something else that I learned during this time. And it doesn't work for everybody, but I'm a chronic oversharer. Like my <laughs> life is a complete open book, right? I don't hide anything from anybody. I tell my patients that I'm going out on a medical leave and why. I tell my colleagues I, um, you know, I'm very open about that. And I know a lot of people are more, much more private than I am about their personal life. But I'm going to make an argument for being an oversharer because the few times in my life when I've truly been in crisis and I have overshared, the help that came out of the woodwork from the most unexpected places was some of the most invaluable help that I got. And I never would have gotten it had I not been open about what I was going through. Um, so while I understand people who want to keep their private life private, I just want to say that when you ask the universe for what you need, or you put it out there, it comes back to you. And from the weirdest places that you would never imagine. And I think that's one of the gifts of going through a crisis is just learning that there are you have more resources in your life um, and using the word resources in a very, with a very wide net. Um, and you don't know. I totally agree. I really think it takes like a special person to like really overshare. Because I think when you overshare and it's kind of like you're not pretending anymore, you know, it's kind of like a different level. And when you're not pretending anymore, like, and you're giving that other person or persons permission to kind of help you or do what they wanted to help you, you know, because I think sometimes like in certain things when people keep on saying no to help, that person really may want to help you, but they don't know how. But if you kind of open the door for them, it allows them to go in, hopefully in like a socially socially respectful way and do what, you know, do what they need to for you because they want to. Well, especially in the community we live in, you know, in a healthcare community, we're all helpers by nature. And one of the, when it, but we never help ourselves. That's a, that's our culture. You that's know? very true. That is. True. We take care of others, yet we could be sinking, or we could be thinking, you know, about depression and, you know, or suicide. I mean, you know, we our field is the number one uh, group where they kill themselves, right? Physicians, right, and, right, and uh, I think it is. It is. There's something about the culture that we, the culture live to and be strong. In. Yeah, yeah that's to, a, almost a horrible word because... Or to hide our quote-unquote weaknesses. Yeah, because isn't the truth, like, bad shit can happen all the time. And the truth is, no one can be, like, Batman strong all the time, like, really, like, hard. You know, your, your, um, your costume is kind of, like, made out of, like, really good plastic where you don't penetrate anything. I mean, that's not real life. Real life is that we feel, you know, there's moments that we are strong. There are moments that are, we are weak. Yes. Yes. And when we feel not so strong, I mean, it. I I wish I could um, describe what it feels like to let go and let people do things for you. I mean, help you 
do research for you, feed your family, um, take a hike with you to get you out of the house and get you out of your head. You know, there's just so many ways people can help you. It's true. And I think the moments when we don't feel strong in our lives, that's okay. And I think it's a time where maybe it's a period to kind of garner up strength for that next step, you know, kind of like a moment of reprieve to kind of recharge your batteries to handle that next step. Yes. Heidi, I was wondering, so what were some of the weird places that you got help then? Oh, you know, what's funny. Um, there was a one friend of mine who uh, wanted to hike with me through this time. And uh, she she just struck the right it's funny, um, one, of the thing, one of the hard things about being a doctor is that when you tell them you have a brain tumor, this this inevitable look of horror comes over their face until they realize. To your friends or patients? Or who? To my, my doctor friends, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously we have a lot of friends who are doctors. So when you tell them what's going on, there's this universal look of horror that comes over their face. And then they realize they have to rearrange their face because they realize that they have this look of horror on their face. But people who aren't in medicine don't do that. They're just kind of curious. And so tell me about that. What does that mean? That sounds kind of scary, you know? So kind of being with non-medical people was actually kind of a gift. And um, this friend would take me on these beautiful hikes and get me out in nature to get out of my head. And, um, And she also was going through somewhat of a crisis in her own life. And so we would share and it wasn't all about me. You know, a lot of times we would hike and talk about what was going on in her life. And and um, that was really helpful for me to kind of have that balance where I felt like yourself. I could also give back to her, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing is like one of the, the strangest places I got some help was um, I really don't know a lot about brain tumors. But as it turns out, my son's boyfriend's father had a brain tumor, and he is a physicist and a researcher, and he had done tons of research. And he reached out to me and shared some of his research with me, and that was really validating of the path I had chosen. And um, anyway, so that was kind of an odd place to get reassurance and validation. Um, And then, you know... It was funny. I had I have a lot of really lovely colleagues at work, and it was so interesting. You know, a lot of people have a diff a lot of different reactions when you present your what's happening with you, and I have to say one of the one of the reactions that was the most helpful to me through my illness was um, one of my friends said to me, uh, "You know, Heidi." Um, you're a really valuable friend. I really value your friendship. And many people do. And we are going to lift you up through this experience. And those were just the words I needed to hear at that time. And because uh, it was at a time of kind of turmoil and trying to decide what I was going to do. And I remember you know, the recovery from a craniotomy, at least for the first few days, is no joke. And I was pretty miserable. And um, But I kept hearing those words 
resonating in my head. And um, they really did help me as I as I thought about all the friends who were thinking about me and either praying for me or throwing some love into the universe in my direction. It really did lift me up. So, and it wasn't, you know, somebody I talked to every day or every week or even every month, but it was, you know, those, those are the kind of funny things that come out of the woodwork. Yeah. To share, like for someone to share their humanity with you. Yes. Yes. Heidi, can I ask you, did you cry or were you mad before uh, the surgery, before you knew your diagnosis? What an interesting question. I don't remember ever being mad. <laughs> I mostly had this idea like, oh, my gosh, I've lived such a charm life. Here we go. This is it. Mm-hmm. You know, I only cried once, interestingly. Um <laughs> When was that? <laughs> when, um, ironically, the day that I found out I had a brain tumor, my husband and I had just gone to the lawyer and signed our will and our family trust. <laughs> and um, and the only time I cried was thinking I was, I remember I was hugging my husband and I was thinking about my husband is a real giver on a on a good day. So I knew that he was going to rock this whole thing with me. But when I thought about this, this sounds like such a crazy thing. But when I thought about how grateful I was that he was going to be with me and then I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to leave him. I'm going to start crying talking about it. And when he goes through this. I'm not going to be there for him. That is the only time I cried. The rest of the time. Like um, that thought flashed into your head. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the time, I wasn't sad. It was more of a kind of steely determination to get to the other side and be healthy again. Mm -hmm. Whatever that took. Heidi, I guess before your diagnosis, before the surgery, did you do anything to prepare No, interestingly, because usually when I'm hit with a crisis of some sort, the first thing I do is hit the internet or the library and, you know, look at the research or look at, read books about it. And somehow or another, this was so overwhelming that I decided very consciously not to do any research, that I was just going to depend and my healthcare team to fill me in on what I needed to know. And then once I got a diagnosis, I could always change that and I could go do my research. But um, I didn't. Uh, I, I did a little bit of research about what I would need post-op to help me with my recovery. Um, and I... I handed off to friends like I knew that there would be people who would want to help and I didn't want to have all those conversations. So one thing I'm really grateful for that I did in preparation was I asked one friend to kind of um, be the captain of the team to try to wrap whatever could I give her name if they wanted to help out in some way. And she graciously agreed to do that. And that was like as an advocate kind of thing. As an advocate and as a way to diffuse all the energy coming my way Mm -hmm. 
to her so that I could just focus on what I wanted to focus on Yeah, was really helpful. I think that really makes sense because even the way you described your doctor friends when you shared what you were going through with them, you know, I think like having too much knowledge at the wrong time is not helpful. You know? Well, it's an effort to take control of a situation that you really don't yeah. have any control of. And you right? don't know what the diagnosis is. And it really, that information, if that's not the time, can really make you kind of feel crazy. You know, it, it just, it's like that feeding that worry word. You yes, know? I felt like that would just contribute to the head spin, you know. Exactly. And I didn't, what I needed to do was calm the head spin, not beat it. Or right? even like the way there's pay, there's people who look at WebMD, get all this information for like a very vague symptom, that information may or may not be helpful to you, you know? And I think you waiting for your diagnosis from your team, from the surgery, I think that took a lot of guts, you know, and to start thinking then. I don't know. It didn't feel gutsy. It felt, it felt like a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. It, it, it felt like the path of the most calmness rather than it's funny when you the few times that i have been in crisis one of the gifts of being in crisis is that you um you just focus on the basics you know the essence of what's important and um the rest of our lives are so busy and there's so many details to it but when you come to a place like that like Am I going to have surgery? Uh, do I, you know, if I am, what are the possibilities? Um, you really, your whole bandwidth shrinks down to this very shallow, not shallow, it's very deep, but um, a very narrow bandwidth. Um, and it's kind of a relief when you've been juggling details and lots of busyness and lots of things to let go of those balls that you've been juggling and put them down and just say, okay, I don't really have any choice right now. I've got someone else has to deal with those balls. And I'm just, these are very important balls that I'm going to keep juggling. And uh, to narrow that focus, there is something kind of, it's a bit of a relief. Of sorts, you know? I think so. Because I think those kinds of moments, we almost all need it in our lives, you know? Kind of like almost like a reset in a way. Oh, that's really true. That's really true. And if you're smart, (laughs) we'll see how smart I am because I'm only about 12, 14 weeks out, um, that you remember how, how, what a relief it is to put down some of those balls some of the time. Like... You know, my life is much less busy, and a part of that is thanks to the pandemic, too. But it also is a conscious choice to say, I'm not going to sweat those details. I'm not going to be a perfectionist about this or that anymore, because now I know that I can use that energy in a different way, and it's so much better for me to do that, you know? Letting it go. Letting things go. Yeah. Um and just recognizing, you know, the beauty of the simple things around your life, right? I mean, one of the silver linings of this whole thing is my kids who are kind of far flung all over the country came home for my surgery and to help take care of me. 
Um, and uh, we anticipated I was going to be getting radiation and chemotherapy afterwards. So they stayed for a few weeks. And um, gosh, it was such a pleasure to have my young adult children at home with no other agenda other than to just be home as a family. And um, gosh, that was that was great. And you think, you know, sometimes you think like, oh, if I had this horrible diagnosis, I'd want to fly to Paris or I'd want to, you know, uh, hike Machu Picchu or whatever. But really, honestly, when I was in that situation, what I really wanted was to have long leisurely dinners with my family and enjoy their company and laugh over our shared jokes. And, um, you know, the, the big vacations or the big wows and moments were not nearly so important when I really felt like I had this very limited time, you know? It's amazing how sometimes like those simple moments or simplicity, that's a luxury in this day and age. Yes. You know, like having time to talk to someone, having time to like, you know, not be looking at the TV or I don't know, everything else that's going on in our world and just being together, like having that time yes. and not feeling rushed. Yes. And, and it's helped me in other ways. Like I, at one point in my career, I, I couldn't even imagine retiring because I love my work and it it's so much a part of who I am. And now I realize that it's just a part of who I am. And there's a lot of when you work as hard as we do, there's a cost to it, which you know very well. And um, that the part of the cost is not having the luxury of time to enjoy those moments or these like moments like we're having right now where we get to sit in your home and talk about important things. You know, if I were working today, we wouldn't be able to do it. It's true. You know, like someone was telling me that she felt that in my life I was juggling too much. I mean, I was like working, you know, pretty much full time, taking care of the kids. On my day off, I would go food shopping. I was like, what? That's not juggling a lot. I was like, I had no idea until I stopped it that, wow, that really was a lot. You know, like I thought the normal pace was to rush and to not rush is such a weird feeling. It is. It takes a little while to get used to, doesn't it? Or to not talk all the time and to listen. That's been an experience, you know? Yes. Heidi, did you set any goals for yourself? That What were you looking forward to? Like, to kind of get you through this, were there any goals? You know, I didn't have any goals kind of in the same way I said that I imagined that I'd want to do these big things like travel or something. Now, my goal is just to ride this feeling as long as possible. Like I talk about the day that I found out that this tumor was benign and that I didn't have to have chemotherapy or radiation. I was at Lake Tahoe with my family. I had planned one last family vacation before I started treatment. And uh, I was you know, sitting in this Adirondack chair with my feet in Lake Tahoe, watching all my kids and their friends playing around me and um, just gorgeous day. And I get this phone call out of the blue from my surgeon who gives me this great news, which was like this wash over of relief that you can't even imagine. And she's so sweet. 
when I told her, you cannot even imagine what a wonderful feeling it is to get this news. She goes, oh no, I can. I rarely ever get to make these phone calls and it feels really good to me too. <laughs> so uh, that feeling was so good that I am just trying to hold on to that feeling as long as I possibly can and to share it with everybody. My uh, One of my friends says, God, Heidi, you're manic. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I am. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but um, just to remember, you know, I wake up almost every morning and think, gosh, I could be getting chemo and radiation today. And I'm not. I get to get up and out of bed and take my walk with the dog and enjoy the coast and, you know, it's, I just want to hold on to that feeling. It's like you feel a can. lot of gratitude. Yes. For every single moment right now. Yes. And it's, I, I don't, actually, part of what I've learned from this experience is to let go of goals, right? Because mm -hmm. we're always so task-oriented and goal-oriented. And perhaps just live. Yeah. And to just be grateful every day. It sounds so trite and cliche, but honestly, that's much more important to me now than some of the goals I've made for myself in my life. I think sometimes that's how I view illness, though. You know, like whether or not the diagnosis is good or bad, sometimes it could be like a period of rebirth. Yes. You know, or reset. A reset. Yes, yes. I agree. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like kind of your stop. You're kind of like forced to stop and think about. And you go on this path, but going on that path, kind of, you know, it changes you and hopefully in a good way. And, it, you know, and that's kind of how I see you. It seems like there was definitely like a reset for you. Yeah, I think so. And I hope it stays reset because it feels pretty damn good. <laughs> what do you think you can do for yourself to kind of continue this feeling where you appreciate life and all that it has to offer right now? Or you think about it? I think think the way to keep it going is to just do it every day and keep that meta awareness of, oh yeah, I didn't feel this way before June of 2020. And, uh, and it feels good just to remind yourself, oh yeah, this feels really good yeah. to, to dwell on the beauty of every day rather than being so focused on future focused or goal focused I think just keep doing it I think it's amazing like a lot of us like take life for granted until that time where you have to like you're forced to think about it you know it's like you're walking through life half asleep a lot of the time exactly like you and know, it wakes you up a little you're, you're either like so tired and you're just kind of walking but you don't feel it as much you know or, like, you know, you're so busy and your kids, like, are watching, like, TV for six hours a day kind of thing. Like, you know, it's like not being in that moment. Yes. So what are you doing right now that you weren't doing before then? Um, You know, most of my life, especially when my kids were little and grown up, every moment was crammed with something. I felt this need to be really productive. And if I wasn't cooking something good or planning a dinner party, I love to entertain. I love to introduce interesting people to other inter inter interesting people in my life. Um, or 
you know, doing activities with the kids, you know, just wanting to make their life as as jam-packed fun and filled with stuff. Um, and now that both the pandemic and my health experience or my adventure in neurosurgery, as I call it, um, had made me slow down. I hope I never go back to cramming as much into a day as I can. I spent much of my adult life cramming and they were all good things. I always used to laugh about how my life was just crammed full of good things. But even when it's all good things, it takes your energy and you don't have that expanse or that luxury of listening or just feeling. Um, so I guess that's what's really different is, is I have whole days now where I don't have anything planned except taking the dog for a walk and reading a good book. And my younger self would never have allowed that to happen. That would have been a waste of a day, but it's so not a waste of a day. Exactly. I think instead of like approaching life, it was like kind of like vacation mode where you have to jam pack it in as much as possible and you're exhausted after vacations like this. But to think about actual recharging, Mm -hmm. you know, to feel balanced, I feel like that is, you know, it's such a, you know, it's not very, it doesn't happen frequently in our lives that we feel balanced. And I think whatever we're feeling, you know, we give off a feeling to those around us, right? And I feel like the more grounded I can stay, I feel more grounded today than I have in you know, years. And I feel like it makes me a better spouse. It makes me a better mother. It makes me a better doctor. It makes me a better friend. Um, because I'm before I just like, I, I exuded a different kind of energy, I think. And it wasn't bad. It was good energy too. But I just feel like for me, maybe this is the time of my life I'm supposed to exude this kind of calmer energy. And um, it feels really good. I know the demands of our work as a physician. How are you going to, how are you planning to kind of maintain this, you know, balance when our work entails so much? And sometimes I really feel like there is no balance in terms of our, our work. It's funny that you bring it up this week because you know, I don't want to make anybody feel like I love my work every moment, every, every every day, right? It's I get overwhelmed too, and I get really frustrated, and I throw f bombs around all the time at work. Um, but I I hope that I can get back to a balance or feeling uh, grounded a little easier um, now because I just have this perspective like. Um, why am I going to spend my energy getting upset about Mm -hmm. a patient who wasn't booked in the right appointment or, you know, I don't have enough time to do what I really need to do for this patient. Those are the kind of things that make me upset. Um, But uh, so one of the things I've been doing is speaking up and setting boundaries and trying to model for some of my younger peers who might not have the confidence that I have to speak up for boundaries. Like, no, I'm not going to force that patient on my schedule because I 
don't have time to do it justice. And it's not fair to me either to make me feel that overwhelmed or make me stay late or whatever. So I'm, I'm finding my voice to say no and to also have the confidence that if I see something that I can change for the better, not just for myself, but for my group or whatever, to speak up because I feel like, hey, what are they going to do? Fire me. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, whereas, you know, a lot of my peers, they've got another 20, 25 years to work. And um, so if I can speak out and, and set some boundaries and, you know, try to make the workplace more humane, um, you know, be an advocate for my patients, be an advocate for my peers. Um, maybe that's my swan song as I work for the last few years of my career. And I think, Heidi, like, considering everything you've gone through, I think your voice is important, you know, like, even for the field of medicine to voice your voice, you know, to make some of the wrongs right now right, or even, you know, the, the things that we as physicians go through you know, to be a voice. Well, and even if it's not a far-reaching voice, you know, if, if, if you can make a difference in your department or your little piece of that world, Mm -hmm. it still is worth using your voice in that way. You know, there's a time when I was younger that I probably envisioned my voice having a bigger audience. And now that doesn't matter to me. It's just, if I can use my voice for good things in my own tiny little fish pond, that's enough for me. Can I ask you, how do you think your health scare affected your children? Um, you know, I think they're all three very, very different people, and they handled it very differently. Um, I can tell they are appreciative, more appreciative of me. They're always, they're always been appreciative, but uh, you know, they stay in touch, and um, they are young adults, and they kind of stepped up and took care of me that I'd say before this health crisis, they were pretty used to me taking care of them and being the mom. And this time they saw me in a moment where I needed help and they stepped up and helped me, whether it was taking me for a walk or driving me to appointments or just sitting with me when I didn't feel well or, or just thinking about, what they were doing would affect me, like uh, when they would go back to school or when they would um, plan things. It's I think it's made them more empathetic in general, but certainly to me as their mother, I think they got to see me not being the strong woman and, and contributing to me getting better. I think um, they grew up a little bit through it. And how has this affected your relationship with your husband? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, it's so funny. My husband, um, he was amazing taking care of me. He's one of these people that's a nest builder and he thinks about all the little things that will make other people. That's pretty amazing because a man is typically not a nest builder. I know. We've (laughs) always had these gender role reversals in our relationship. (laughs) I've always been the hard ass. He's always been the nurturer, right? So if I have to say, boy, he was awesome taking care of me as I was recovering. And it wasn't until I was with a group of friends and we were outdoors having a party for someone else. And one of my friends asked him, Chris, how was this for you? And 
I thought that he just kind of put his head down and worked through the whole thing because that's what it looked like for me. And I didn't see him getting really emotional. He seemed to just kind of meet it, meet the needs and take care of tasks so that I didn't have to. And he started talking to this person that he didn't know very well about how terrifying it was to see his wife who has always been the one who's been decisive and energetic and vociferous, not really have a voice and be weak and, and have a weak voice literally and figuratively. And, um, he found the whole experience terrifying and I didn't know that it was, um, it's interesting. So as we've gotten through this, a lot of times we'll go on walks together or we'll do something together. And one or the other of us will say, can you believe we get to get do this? You know, walk and go have breakfast at our favorite place when we could be doing something so different. And um, so it's changed our relationship in that we, we as a couple kind of reinforce to each other like how lucky we are that we just get to do these little things, like go have breakfast together. And, um, and he's been really more, um, I don't know, more solicitous. Just, he's just showing me how grateful he is that I'm here and back to, you know, piss and vinegar, as I like to say. Um, so it's brought us a lot closer together, I think. And it's hard to tease that out from us being empty nesters now and having all that concentrated time together through the pandemic and through my illness. Um, but yeah, I'd say that we've become a lot closer. I think that's a sign of a good relationship, don't you think? You know, to go through something like this, this huge scare, and then all of a sudden having so much time together, you know, like when now that you're empty nesters. Yeah, you know? I think of it could go either way. Yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> like, we've we've made a choice that so we're going to make evolve it work. together. Yeah, you know that's the definition of a true partnership to evolve together. Yeah, you know to be there. Well, and I'm as I, you are too. I'm someone who always likes to dive to the deep end of conversation. I don't like to spend a lot of time in the shallow end, and um, all of going through all this has given us a lot of fodder to have really deep conversations you know just about um like I, I had some stress dreams and one day I woke up from a dream and I dreamt that I died and he married this woman that I can't stand <laughs> <laughs> and so we woke up and laughed about that and um and uh but it did prompt this conversation about if we lost each other, would we get married? And what would that be like? And what would we be looking for in a spouse? Would it be different than what we did now? And um, anyway, great conversations have come out of this. In so. retrospect, would you be pissed, like, if he married someone you disliked? <laughs> My husband, um, honestly, no. I pr- As long as they treated my kids okay and my kids got along with them, they, I would be fine. I just, he's, he's, one of these people that just needs to be married and take care of people. And mm-hmm. so I think if I die, drop dead tomorrow, that uh, I would want him to get married to somebody because that's what makes him who he is. He's a know? lover, not a hater. Yeah, oh, he totally <laughs> is. My husband is definitely, definitely likes to take care of people. And Heidi, if I may ask you, what are you grateful for? Oh, my goodness. 
the list is super, super long. Um, today, I'm really grateful to be living in this gorgeous place where I got to walk on the beach this morning and just enjoy a little time. I took the next couple of days off for my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. And um, I'm really grateful to be able to spend it with people who I adore and um, really that's it. That Those are the most important things to me right now. I've always been grateful to have a, a career that I love and I find really meaningful. Um, that's definitely true. Um, and I'm grateful that my kids are all doing well and still want to call me every now and again, tell me how they are. Heidi, I just want to let you know I'm so grateful that you're looking so beautiful. And I'm so thankful that your diagnosis was what it was and that you have this new take on life. You're such a blessing in this world, and I really mean that. And that's one of the reasons why I've always admired you for your light. And you've been a blessing in, in my life as well. Thank you, Michelle. You're so sweet to say that, and I know you mean every word, and it means a lot to me. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. <laughs>